Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, we have as our guest a new friend to me, actually, Frances Bronnett. I met her a couple of months ago at our friend Dwight McBride, who's also been a guest here on The Caring Economy, president of the New School University. Frances is the president of Pratt Institute, a rival institution, as fate would have it, here in New York. She's an educator, a leader at the forefront of interdisciplinary learning. Ronette previously served as senior president and provost at Illinois Institute of Technology. She was the acting provost and dean of School of Architecture and Allied Arts for the University of Oregon and architecture professor, associate dean and acting dean at Rensselaer Polytech Institute. She has been appointed to the Future of Workers Task Force here in New York City by none other than Mayor Adams himself, underlining her commitment to the bolstering of New York City's talent and workforce development to ensure an inclusive economic recovery. She's also a member of the Consortium of Sustainable Urbanization's Advisory Board. She's an executive board of the Association of Independent Colleges in Art and Design, or ACADS board. And she's co-chair of the local Myrtle Avenue Business Improvement District. So whether it's national, international, local, Frances Bronnett is your person to address these challenges of contemporary life. Welcome to the caring economy, Frances Bronnett. Wow, thank you, Toby. Thank you very much. So, Francis, we always ask our guests to just give us a sort of two or three minute digest. It's hard with such an accomplished uh, life that you've had. Um, but tell us a little bit about you, where you hailed from, how you were raised, maybe mentored, how you found your way to this great prestigious institution. Well, I grew up in inner city Montreal. Uh, my father's Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, uh, her parents came over very late, half the family born in Russia, half the children born in Canada. Uh, my parents were working class all their lives. My father was a laborer in a factory till he retired at 75. My mother was both a laborer and then ultimately a salesperson. I was, I would be, would have been considered a street kid. I spent a lot of times on the streets because my parents worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, they were very comfortable with Montreal streets, right? They, when you come from a place where there's war and you're, you're at camp, you think Montreal streets are safe, right? They're perfect. So I, I grew up in the streets. Of course, it's Montreal. So I say that I grew up in the streets, but um, it's cold half the year. In fact, it's winter still, right? Yeah. So there was something called Neighborhood House, uh, which was an offshoot of the Y. And I only recently found out it was actually for delinquent kids to get them off the street. <laughs> um, I had no idea there were social workers. And were Guilty as charged. <laughs> it was it was just a place. I, I And I understand. I mean, we were bands of kids that were roving, you know, and probably doing things that were not the best things. And But I was a smart kid. Um, I was in enriched classes by the time I got to high school. I can't say it was clear I had mentors. I decided to go into architecture and engineering because um, that's not what anybody I knew was doing. Uh-huh. I was good in art. I was good in science. Uh, um, and I did them both together because I thought, you know, I'm going to succeed someplace. If I fail out of architecture or engineering, I can go into science. I can go to, I mean, ridiculous rungs of a ladder that I had established. My parents didn't go to school. My father didn't go to school at all. And my mother dropped out in eighth grade. So when people say, if I had just gotten to high school, 
I fundamentally was first gen high school. Um, mm -hmm. So I understand it. I, um, I was totally scholarship students. Of course, it was Canadian schools, So $800 a year is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> but I, I, I have a commitment to that about how do you get to school and how do you make sure that everybody who wants to have an education, when I think about Pratt, a creative education um, can actually, how do you access that? Where is it? And again, we're, we're in a happen to be in a city that has tens and tens and tens of opportunities for, for universities and colleges. Um, so I was a tutor by the time I was 10 years old. Uh, I made 10 times, maybe 15 times as much money as babysitting, uh, <laughs> except I only had one hour a week as opposed to 30 hours a week babysitting. I started teaching right away. So the minute I, you know, I was a teaching assistant and then I, the minute I graduated and I was practicing as an architect, I taught at night in community colleges and I knew I wanted to become faculty. Um, so I had an office, but I taught at night. Um, and then I went to graduate school at Columbia. So I was at McGill for undergraduate uh -huh. in architecture and engineering. And then I went to architecture at Columbia um, a few years later after my office was up and going. I always thought I would go back to Montreal and teach at McGill, but that didn't happen. Um, I ended up building a house for a client in Southampton. You can't even imagine, I had no idea what a Southampton was. So I, uh, I started teaching right after I graduated from Columbia. I was teaching at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Um, I taught architecture and structures, again, because I was an engineer. And I moved up the ranks there. And when I realized I couldn't, the dean was not going anywhere, I moved out to the University of Oregon to become the dean of uh, the School of Architecture and Allied Arts, now the College of Design. I was always somebody who sort of navigated relationships mm -hmm. and made sure that even though the School of Architecture and Allied Arts was relatively small in terms of 1,600 students in a school that had 25,000 students, I was really interested in leading. And so I led the deans for a while. Um, and when there was a moment that they had to put in uh, an acting provost, even though I did not have a PhD, which is very unusual to become a provost without the highest academic rank, um, I was there. And it, it really opened opened up everything, that spread of seeing all disciplines. And as you mentioned in your intro, I have always been an interdisciplinarian. And it isn't just because I had architecture and engineering. I also did a diploma in business. But I was working in dance from the get-go and uh, building large-scale dance installations. Mm -hmm. um, I started, launched a whole number of programs in product design and innovation, um, really thinking about how do we break open the creative arenas and inform other disciplines mm -hmm. that there's a value in what does iteration look like? What does creativity look like? And I see it now. I mean, we, we see the business community saying, you know, the creative economy or what is creative, you know, thinking, what is open-ended thinking, um, what is design thinking? And these are very, very difficult practices. Um, they're not something you just take on, you do a bunch of stickies and you have an answer. Um, and I think, um, they're rigorous. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think understanding that knowledge as expert knowledge, whether you're an anthropologist, you're, a, uh, you're in fintech, you're a data scientist, how do you pull all the ways that we do mm -hmm. our work together so that something that we couldn't possibly imagine emerges? And I think that's what's so extraordinary about, you know, ultimately getting here I went to uh, an engineering institution from the University of Oregon to become the provost there at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. And that was a remarkable place too, where uh, remember that their school of architecture was run by Mies van der Rohe many, many decades ago. 
Um, their school of design was run by Maholi Naj. I mean, this was a place of extraordinary thinking and profound, mm. profound work. Um, coming to Pratt um, was really something, there was a political dimension to Pratt. Everybody understands Pratt as an extraordinary art and design school and actually has the oldest uh, library science program in the country as well. Uh, and I think people understand it as that art and design and perhaps a kind of investigation around information. Um, but it also has the longest running community design center in the country, which is the Pratt Center for Community Development. Mm. Used to be community develop economic development, but um, fundamentally a commitment by a group of people to really work with the expertise of the local knowledge to, to have solutions that can make lives better, uh, really thinking about the city as an equitable resource. Mm -hmm. And witness, you're joining Mayor Adams's committee now. Even that's an extension of that, right? So that that's a really important piece, and there, I really wanted to be part of that because um, we see our students, both undergraduate and graduate, working in the world in these creative manners, but truly responsible to the place that they're at and the communities they're engaged with. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons was if we're trying to build. Uh, a middle-class, um, fundamentally jobs, positions, careers, callings, whatever you want to call call them, uh, for people for to have sustenance and joy in their lives uh, long-term, where do we have to start? Mm -hmm. And I think you have to start way, way, way little. Um, and one of the things that we're doing actually is we're launching a high school. Um, so we're launching a high school, which is around design and justice. It will be mm -hmm. called Design Works. It's in collaboration with Bank Street College of Education, but more importantly, really emerges out of the Department of Education. It was a competition and it thinks about the idea of design and creating places of equity and justice, environmental, social, economic, from a much younger age. And to imagine, um, places where there isn't this distinction between the learning you do in a studio or a classroom, the mm. learning you do in the city and the learning you might do in industry. Mm. So we're working, we have partnerships. Um, you know, when you think about young people at the early ages, they can watch and see and be excited and maybe take something back to the classroom. But very soon, I mean, I was tutoring a 10, right? We know at 10, <laughs> they can be making things. They can oh, be yes. making and taking down technology. <laughs> well, that's for sure. That yeah. is absolutely, what do we learn from them, right? They are our, they're also our reciprocal partners. So uh, a, a couple of questions just from the opening. Um, one is just the Holocaust piece is fascinating, right? I can't learn enough. We can't remind ourselves enough about the Holocaust. You've touched a little bit on how that affected your parents and their life and their choices, but how did that um, come to bear on you and in your approach to life, having parents who were both Holocaust survivors? So my mother was actually not a survivor. My father was. Father, sorry. Um, but I grew up in a neighborhood that was very, very, very complex. I would say that 70% of it was Holocaust survivors and the other percent, 30% were West Indian Haitian immigrants. Mm -hmm. Because, of mm. course, I grew up in Montreal, so you're going to have people who are French-speaking, and it, even though it's freezing cold. It was a neighborhood that I think my parents were extraordinarily humble and mm. very, very giving and not 
angry. I can't say that about everybody in mm. my family um, because so much was ripped away. And in my own family, many, many members of my family were murdered from my grandparents to aunts and uncles and mm. cousins. They would have been cousins of kind of, I had much older um, aunts and uncles as well. Mm. So I think that was, but we never talked about it. It was never present in the house. You probably know this. Holocaust survivor children, we have very fractured ways of understanding what happened. And in fact, to this day, it doesn't matter how much I read and how much I've watched and how much I've listened. My um, perception is incredibly broken up of what happened when. And, you know, my father was in a uh, displaced um, persons camp for years before he got a visa. But yeah. again, he was a very joyous, humble grateful man but of course you know the classic line is go to school because they can't take that away from you my own life um, I did have a relatively conservative father who said you know when I graduated from high school at 17 you go to secretarial school become a secretary and please don't let anybody know you're smart because you will never get married things these forces yeah. you know conspiring but I was tough and I was Somebody who I think I always understood my own abilities um, and I recognized genius around me. That was a, what I was probably was my, my, I would say my superpower is that, and I could see this person is extraordinarily smart, but may not have the social capacities to make something happen. How, what would it look like if we partnered? My early practice was, was community design, was um, moderate income, low income housing. I lived in low income housing. And I was also, what was interesting for me speaking about my background is uh, my parents, again, poor, we rented an apartment, we never owned anything. My father never wanted to put anything on the walls of the apartment because it didn't belong to us. We didn't have music, we didn't have art. In fact, the first Art museum I had gone to was, by, by the time I was 20, I had only gone to Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. I had wow. never been. So imagine that I'm now the head of an art and design school. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I think um, it's exciting. It makes sense in that you were, you discovered a whole world. It's like Dorothy going from black and white to technicolor, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> I think that I'm always learning and I'm always I also, you know, what it, I certainly regretted not taking humanities and social sciences um, in a meaningful way. I took them just to get through my architecture and engineering degree. And then when my daughter studied sociology and English literature, I read everything. Now we're talking about just a few years ago. Yeah. But I was so hungry to understand the sort of philosophical um frameworks and theoretical frameworks of the very disciplines that I have been leading um, forever. Um, it, it, and that was quite remarkable for me. That uh, I understand that myself as a lifelong learner, uh, and I respect that. Um, it's quite humble as well. I guess you picked that up from your parents. Two-part question on the humanities piece. So you went in a way that historically was not particularly available to women, right? What today we call STEM, and you excelled at it. So I wonder, one by the question is, what was that like to be a woman charging out in that area? And then two, as a as the president of Pratt Institute, 
which does do so well and is so well recognized around STEM categories. But what about the humanities? We read these dire reports now about the humanities in free fall, what STEM meant to you and then how STEM is playing out today. This sounds awful as an academic, but for me, it was really instrumental, right? Get through these courses. These are going to get you to a particular place. Um, It would have been amazing to actually have had them embedded with that theoretical or critical lens so that um, when you're learning one, you're not learning it alone, right? It's actually uh, embedded. That spectral learning, much more interesting. I spent the rest of my life looking at interdisciplinary learning. When we launched product design and innovation at RPI, it was with an anthropologist, archeologist. It was with an engineer. It was with with all disciplines because they come at this with such different lenses that it actually reframes the question. James Baldwin Mm -hmm. stated that the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions that have been hidden by the answers. I mean, this is amazing, right? And how do you get there? That's what design thinking does, but it is actually by pulling people in who would look at it differently than you would look at it. And I say this with the work that we do in the communities, right? So it's not just the Pratt Center. We have civic action fellows across all of our all of our disciplines, the art disciplines, the design disciplines, information disciplines, humanities and social sciences, architecture. The communities themselves have this richness of expertise that we need to draw on. So that commitment, again, of partnering with the community is absolutely critical. And the communities go beyond that. Right now, we launched our research open house um, uh, at the Navy Yard. Uh, we didn't launch the open house. The open house launched our yeah. research yard where we're actually in a place which is all about entrepreneurship and, uh, and also building the middle class, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. We are now in that place where we're going to be doing research. And the research is, al- is also going from literally archaeological digs to the making of products, to, you know, to IP, to tech transfer. And really seeing some of it is going to be, we won't know what the answers are for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Some of them are very, very in the moment, but it's also about partnering with that community, you know, of, you know, whatever, 15,000 people um, and a rising economy right at the edge of Brooklyn. So these are all critical elements for us. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have as our guest, Frances Bronnett. She's the president of the very storied uh, Pratt Institute here in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, with campuses elsewhere. Frances, tell us a little bit about uh, Pratt, not only the institution, but its magnetism for you. What what yeah. makes it sort of your home base? So I, I've said this a million times, but this audience has never heard it. So I have to tell you, this has been an extraordinary experience. Obviously, we went through two and a half years of COVID. Um, it is, I say, it is a, a very, very intellectually and compassionately generous community in every way, shape, and form. In a moment, you know, during COVID, we have unbelievable workshops, right? We have printing, we have 2D, 3D printing, we have everything you can imagine. You know, and we closed down. Um, but those shops were running around the clock to, to produce PPE um, so that we had, so we had masks for our neighboring hospitals. Um, mm-hmm. People, and at that time we thought it was dangerous to be together, right? And people said, you know what, we're gonna do it anyway. 
Um, much to my terror, I will say, as, as a leader of an institution who wants to make sure everybody's safe and protected. Um, I think, um, I will say the Pratt Center, when I was at Columbia, I came over here for all the work that was done, designers, planners, architects for social responsibility. I think the acronym is, I may have said it in opposite order, but um, that's where all the work was that was really politically, socially um, engaged and, and really working again with the local experts and understanding that local knowledge could really inform us um, with what we were doing, whether it was theoretical or applied. And it's had extraordinary impact. I mean, we, you know, we've we've gotten funded for Pratt Center uh, last year. Got funded to retrofit um, low-income housing so that it's to be more sustainable. Um, we have rethought what our basement apartments. Trying to think about how do we change the, you know, legislative processes to look also to look at right now. If we think about how what has happened right now. Well, I'm looking at the city, right? We want to talk about what can we do? Um, and everybody's in a panic because central business districts, whether it's New York or Chicago or San Francisco, they've been eviscerated. Um, this is the time, our faculty, our students, and this is happening, I think, across design fields, um, are looking at how do we rethink that city? How do we rethink that building? Not just opening up the center core so that we can put apartments and get light into them, but what is it? What happens when there is no clear central business district? Mm -hmm. Or we have faculty who say, "Don't ever think about that. That's what we have. That's extraordinary. Don't get rid of get rid of that because there's some value about." That. So, actually creating the spaces for those debates and challenges to occur in fora at the universities, at the institutes, at the colleges is absolutely critical because we want those fights to happen in a respectful and meaningful way where people can mutually learn, whether you're a developer, you're a contractor, you're an architect, you're an inhabitant. What does that look like? Yeah, so, plus you can also marry it, I would imagine, with the research and the technology. You can model things. You can actually do things that no others can do. Absolutely. We can put all that data together and really, really dig in. Again, if I could take my data visualization crew from the School of Information and I put them with my you know, animation group and the architects and the industrial designers, you can imagine something emerges that you couldn't have predicted. I mean, yeah. we just had an invention uh, where a scientist got together with a designer to think of new ways that we could, uh, of materials that could absorb water for deserts. Um, that might've happened in a research one university, but not uh -huh. without design. <laughs> yeah. What about um, patents? Are you finding that your students historically are, are great generators of patents and, and innovations? So that would be great. Um, <laughs> that's our next step. So IP is really, um, is now part of the research yard ecosystem. Um, to think about, and as we opened, so we opened on Friday, um, there were people who, who are coming from the legal profession saying, you need to start protecting some of these things that are emerging that we just saw just sitting around on a table. Um, but other things that already are where we're working directly with manufacturers, with industry, uh, with proprietors. And so there is proprietary work being done. 
um, more confidentially. Yeah. Um, do you, sticking with the students for a moment, well, first of all, how many do you have approximately undergrad, graduate students? About oh, we have about 3,500 undergrads and about 1,500. I'm making a very, very yeah, good yeah. Like 1,500 sure. graduate students. Um, Tell us a little bit about the students. I remember, I think I'd mentioned in our sort of prep talk about Bowling Alone, which was a much um, discussed book a couple decades ago about, you know, civic engagement and decline across this country. And yet the student body, it seems to me at Pratt that you're describing is one that is fully engaged. And I wonder if that's a fair assessment and then what your observations have been throughout your career. What is the state of civic engagement and how does one catalyze that in young leaders? So this is a school of civic engagement. I mean, one of our five pillars is civic engagement for our own strategic plan. Um, and it really is that how can we get almost every um, curriculum to have something that is embedded in the community? But remember, we don't wanna just drop into a community and say, hello, we wanna actually be there where we actually, when you're a partner, you stay for decades, which is the success of the Pratt Center or our Graduate Center for Planning and the Environment. These are long, long-term relationships. Our students are ecstatic about working and feeling as though that they, they can make an impact. But we have, I will say our students are very um, specific. They are makers, they are doers, they are critical thinkers and they're implementers and they want to see impact. They are very committed to issues around water, sustainability, climate, uh, social justice and our goal is that they now have the tools to actually make that difference, that they can move from the theoretical to, um, to the pragmatic mm -hmm. and back again, because these are iterative processes of we try it. Um, and some things you can't just try on a community, right? Yeah, There's yeah. risk. Yes, um, and if you burn a bridge, you burnt a bridge, right? It's hard to rebuild trust if you've disappointed. But they are very, I will say post COVID, they're very, very hungry to be together. We have a walk at 4.30 in the morning uh, in August to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge into Manhattan with the students in orientation. You know, usually we have, you know, a few dozen. We had over 300 go this year. They're so, and the excitement of being in New York City and to be change agents. And also, you know, um, there, the, the school itself, remember, something like 80% of our faculty are practicing artists, designers, consultants, architects, makers themselves. And so we have this extraordinary balance of tenure-related faculty members who are deeply involved in often theoretical, but sometimes very applied research. Mm -hmm. Even our humanities and social sciences faculty, they wanna be here at Pratt because of the making. They mm -hmm. understand that relationship that they can now inform makers. Um, so I think that's it's it's a, 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 I think that was also very exciting for me yeah. about that. Well, you know what's also exciting about Francis? It's just so refreshing. It's such clean, simple language, right? Makers, doers, critical <laughs> thinkers, right? It's very you don't see that in a lot of glossy catalogs and whiz bang websites. But how fundamental is it, and how clear is it, right? Like this is a a place of action. It's a catalytic place, is what it comes across as. Um, I I wonder also. It just feels to me as someone who made my way to Manhattan and. And and proudly a New Yorker of 37 years by adoption. Um, 
it seems like the epicenter of cool has shifted to Brooklyn <laughs> since I got here. And I wonder if that's also your perception or, or I don't want to put you on the spot, but it certainly benefits Pratt being a home base in Brooklyn, I would imagine. It is amazing. And we have to think that, you know, there was a moment where we were way, way, way before our time um, where I was thinking Pratt was going to move to Long Island. Uh, this was not a great place to be. It was really tough. Um, although there were wonderful, wonderful nuggets of neighborhood always here, um, it was it was it was more risky. Um, and we want the risks to be intellectual risks sometimes, not you know physical. Right. But I, I do, again, it's always all of these things. Um, I, it's not. It was all bad. There were extraordinary pieces of this neighborhood that were very, very cogent and informed what was going on here and vice versa. There was there, I mean, protests were occurring and they were engaged collectively, right? We had, um, we wanted to be part of, of that community. And it, it, it is very, very vibrant. I mean, we, between the Navy Yard, we have NYCHA, we have, you know, incredible row houses. We've got the parks, we've got really wonderful businesses. Um, all sort of working this beautiful ecosystem. So when I talk about um, rethinking of the city, we do have to think about these very rich neighborhoods mm -hmm. that have been intact for a very long time. They morph over time and certain pieces stay forever, other pieces shift. And so the weaving together, I actually see the bridges as not separators, but as deep connectors. One yeah. of the things, you know, I, I spent all of COVID marching all over Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I think that if you march all over the city, you cannot help but love it. It's mm -hmm. such an extraordinary place, but it's because you have people who um, who make it this- Absolutely. Their energy, their devotion, their commitment, their responsibility right. yep. to building a, a, a city that will, of course, this is a complicated time for, for cities. I never feel any threat. I know that something really remarkable will emerge in this time. As we put, if I go back to the creative thinking that we always have, um, these creative minds linked with business heads and people who look at data and who look at um, the environment, you put them all together um, and we're gonna, we'll have some We'll have hundreds of answers. We just have to act. Well, I, I think, um, you know, when you talk about interdisciplinary uh, approach to your studies and into your life, that in my, I, I love that approach. I share that. I think that that is what in some ways is manifested today in intersectionality, right? Like we, and then more importantly, or as importantly, I, I'm focused on bridging leadership because I think that's what the times demand. We have to be able to bridge, not force people to sides like sometimes our media or our politics do and um, education is certainly a great way to do that would you agree absolutely and you don't want to force them together either that word is problem what what again is the array of ways that people can enter so that they feel both supported and can support others mm -hmm. right because if you don't feel as though you're part of the the setting the question and it is then you're not part of you're not part of the whole, you know, gestalt. Fabric, yeah. And I think pride is a big part as well. I, I have this belief, again, I've been here 36, 37 years. I believe part of the reason New York works 
and I'm not discounting the issues and challenges we have, but I do think that diversity is not an abstract or an exercise here. I think we live with each other's and we are actually, we celebrate it, right? So New York is too hard, too expensive, too difficult to live in. If you're, I believe the people in New York are meant to be here. And that's part of the reason it works. It's kind of like an unwritten social contract that we lift each other up. We celebrate each other, warts and all. We'll have our problems, but those who choose to leave, I respect their choice, but then I think it's for the best and it's meant to be. And those who remain are those who are destined to be here and want to celebrate it and commit to it. So I'll say that there are also all times in our lives where we make various kinds of commitments. In fact, um, when I taught first year, I had a remarkable, remarkable colleague who was, uh, I would say, you know, mentored me in some ways, although it was an accidental mentorship, he probably had no idea. Um, But you can acknowledge him now if you want to give him a shout out. (laughs) Ken Warner, everybody will know who he is. Um, He, um, so he did a project, he was a brilliant man, very tough, um, very, very tough. But he, um, one of the things that he always talked about that we designed with was in first year, very first year, 18 year olds, variable commitment housing. So what is that? You get, we have a lot of students coming into these schools that are come from the suburbs, they're used to single family dwellings. And now they have to work in a situation where you and your partner I'm with my family, three other groups of people. We all decide we love each other. We're all going to get together. We're going to build an apartment building, get together. And then over time, we actually don't like each other anymore. Right? So how do you design a place? But you love the place. You yeah. don't leave the place. How do you design it so it allows for you never to see your partner again? <laughs> Somehow. And these, just even reframing the question. And I think New York is like that. People will leave and they will come back and maybe they come back for a piece of the time or maybe they're here all the time. And I think that it's all of those together that makes it so extraordinary that we have to think about time and space and context. And it's not one or the other. Correct. And the the space is finite. That's part of the the challenge or the the gift. And it's um, it's an ongoing experiment. I, I agree with you. I think it's it's thrilling for that very reason alone. So words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom, sort of I want to have the final word, but Francis Bronnett, what sort of advice would you give either to our younger listeners or even those who might be mid-career thinking about what next looks like? So listen, listen carefully to those around you. Um, hear their voices, look for different voices, put them together and um, and allow your imagination to sort of just move with that, uh, be mutually respectful um, and something magical will occur. I just, um, again, I, I've learned a lot from the people, the genius around me, um, whether it's the environment or the people. Um, so it's hard to do because sometimes uh, you're gonna be surrounded by people who yell at you or they complain or they're late that's all noise, all noise. Find the core of what's extraordinary about them and let that breathe. And I think that you will be very, very successful. Such great advice. I really appreciate it. Francis Bronnett, president of Pratt Institute here in New York, Brooklyn, New York. Francis, thank (laughs) you for coming on. I hope you'll come back. I want to hear more about your strategic plan and how things are going, but kudos to you for all you're doing. Well, thank you. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby 
via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.